So this period of time is a period of uh, question and answers. <coughs> Prior to coming in here, I had the uh, uh, opportunity to take a look through the questions. There are quite a number of questions, so unlikely that I'll be able to answer all of them. Um, hopefully there is a some kind of relationship between the question and the answer. <laughs> but nothing is guaranteed. So, uh, if it isn't, and then it isn't, then it isn't. So, the instructions don't seem very different from Vipassana instructions. Isn't concentration developed through Vipassana? Why should we do a, a, a separate practice for concentration since feeling the breath is the same in both practices? What is the essential difference between concentration and Vipassana practice? And where do they overlap? Good question. The, for those of you who are familiar um, with uh, both ways of approaching um, meditation, one is Samatha Kardis, which I've been speaking to you about over these days. The other is uh, Vipassana, which means uh, uh, insight. There are areas between the two which are similar, as the point person points out, but there are features and aspects of it which are markedly and distinctly and very, very clearly different. With Vipassana practice, the purpose of Vipassana practice is, yes, to bring mindfulness to the object. It is also to see in the giving of attention to the object it's uh, impermanent, to really focus on the impermanent features of it, to really see uh, what's unsatisfactory, particularly around any holding and uh, clinging. And thirdly, it's also to see things very much in process and seeing it much more impersonally than personally, what the Buddhist world calls anatta. So the function and, and the priority with the meditation practice in Vipassana, both in giving attention to mindfulness of breathing, in giving attention to the body, in giving attention to states of mind, is to be clear about impermanence, to be clear about unsatisfactoriness due to distorted relationships around impermanence, and to see things as not me, not myself, not who I am. And therefore, the function and purpose of uh, Vipassana practice is for insight and understanding about how we see things in this world and our relationship to it. And that's the priority in the meditation with myself. It's the priority with the inquiries when people come up here for the one-to-one -one in the Vipassana retreat. It's the priority with the one-to-one -one, um, meeting with the small group meetings that take place on a Vipassana retreat. All for the purpose of 
immediacy of insight and understanding. That is Vipassana. With Samatha practice, we're calling here happiness or deep happiness, there is a definite shift which is taking place. And that shift is, is using, as the person says, mindfulness, yes, it is using certain amount of concentration, yes, but the emph- emphasis is towards the development of calmness of being, towards deep relaxation, towards the access to uh, inner joy and the sense of interconnectedness with what's around us. In the process of, uh, of doing in that, it contributes directly to harmony and well-being and the ex- direct expansion and opening up of the heart. What overlaps, of course, is the importance of the present moment. What over, overlaps is that through samatha practice, at times, a lot of clarity and a lot of insight, vipassana, naturally comes. What overlaps is that with vipassana practice, it will and needs to and deserves to contribute to uh, calmness and contentment. With the samatha practice, we put a lot of emphasis, as the Buddha teaches, on calmness, joy, serenity and happiness. And the cultivation and the experience uh, of that as part of an important healing process, as an important process for waking up our heart, as an important process for feeling much more alive. <coughs> and all the wisdom and understanding that come, can come through that. One finds in the text tremendous emphasis on samatha practice, tremendous emphasis on uh, vipassana practice. The Buddha commented in one talk on this theme, he said, there are four kinds of people in this world. There are people with both samatha and vipassana, meaning living with both calm and insight. There are others who are calm, have much calmness, but lack in insight. There are others who have vipassana, insight, but not much calmness. And there are some <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> bad, bad joke. So sometimes we look at ourselves in life and we say, in life it is a, a need to develop more calm, more insight, etc. So it's an important question that the person asked, but I hope I've helped just to make the distinctions a little clear for us, but they're not absolutely distinct, of course. <coughs> In your talk today, you said, I hope you never say, I've arrived. <coughs> and yet the Buddha, and you in your other talk, <laughs> have outlined the stages of the Noble One and that there is nothing further for this life the spiritual life is fulfilled or the holy life, the spiritual life is fulfilled and so the quote-unquote is from myself the problem has gone out of existence I can understand not quote-unquote fixing um, what the unconditioned is 
but is there a reaching of freedom that is irreversible? Or could you just say more about this apparent dichotomy? Well, I'll try. <coughs> With regard to one sentence, it is a dichotomy. It's a dichotomy which uh, challenges us, and that's the purpose of Dharma dichotomy. One view that arises, and uh, in which, to, to take back to the quote, I hope we say, no, I hope we never say, I've arrived. One of the things that can happen and does happen, and it is not uh, uh, unusual, a person may have a strong, deep, profound experience. The person may put this experience into the highest form of language known to us. It could be the uh, experience of enlightenment, the experience of realizing the truth, the experience of uh, finding God, uh, etc. And there is in that moment, in that point, a feeling that I have arrived via or through that experience or that realization or that uh, insight. What easily happens is, or what can happen, not always, can happen is the I, the sense of self of me, arises during or after and says, I had this experience, this happened to me. The experience, no matter how deep and uh, beautiful and uh, profound and meaningful it is for us, easily can fade and will fade. Fade by change of energy, fade by other feelings and thoughts, fade by sleep, fade by many factors. If the mind, as the self, arises and says, I had this experience, and the self then easily does grasp onto it, subsequent to that, all other experiences will seem much lesser, much more important, and the mind, the self, will be caught in comparing this experience which I had. Because one feels, oh, I arrived at this point, and ever after, poor thing, it's a constant struggle for the self to try to get it back, to have a taste of it again, to touch it again, to experience it again. And this happens when some experience is made to be the point of arrival. So I say to you, I hope you never arrive. Some people have had very deep experiences, very profound experiences. The strength of the grasping has been so strong afterwards, the thought has arose in my mind and I said to the person, it's a terrible pity you ever had this experience. Because the outcome of it is grasping and clinging and problematic and sometimes the outcome of it as well can be the dualism arriving afterwards I know you don't know. And all ego can build up uh, there and all the status and, um, and the, the world of gurudom in all of its forms can then uh, start arising easily through grabbing and grasping experience. <coughs> also said, as the, <coughs> as the person pointed out there, <coughs> to say as it were, there is no point of arrival, etc. 
would reduce us all to forever being on the path. And the primary purpose of being on any path, as far as I can recall, is actually to get to the end of it. And therefore, the spiritual life, a great journey, an extraordinary exploration of consciousness in a uh, very important way. Yet, the arrival, the fulfillment of uh, spiritual life, the sense of uh, completion uh, of it, also matters a great deal. And that completion shows itself in not being a perfect human being, by the way, but it shows itself in a great sense of liberation. And the outcome of that uh, liberation is natural happiness, natural wisdom, natural being at ease with this world and all of its eccentricities. So, one can say, with equal um, concern and uh, conviction, I hope, one never arrives. And one can e- equally say, never be satisfied with any, quoting the Buddha now, never be satisfied, he said, with anything less than the best, and the best is great liberation. And that is the great arrival. Both are, both are, both are valid. And sometimes it creates a little confusion, why not? <laughs> A little bit slow on to the same point in a way. Are we ultimately not seeking a form of being, quote-unquote, which is beyond happiness, even deep happiness? The answer is yes. Are we in danger of settling at a comfortable resting place when we are only halfway home? Very important uh, point here. There is a, a danger. And if let us say, taking the themes uh, of our uh, days here, it would be a pity, as the person wisely points out here, if um, we settled for a deep happiness as a form of being. You may say, I look into myself, I look into habits, patterns and tendencies, not very nice for me, not very nice for others, this is what we say, and we to dissolve that, is to go more deeply, allow consciousness to settle in, allow consciousness, perhaps for the first time in our life, to be much, much, much less outwardly focused and much more with the being. Again, less of the doing and less of the doer. That gives a greater sense of being. And as we know, sometimes in our sitting meditation, just to move the hand from say, resting in the lap down to the end of the knee feels for us we have just done too much for the day. <laughs> and, there is, and there is some truth in it, some truth in, in, in so far that the sense of being uh, matters to us, we, we wish to uh, experience it. It would be a pity, I completely agree, to make deep happiness uh, the end. It would be to stop too far. And what's important with deep happiness, deep as it is, but what is beautifully important is, what is the nature of that which reveals? There there can be happiness for us. 
and it's a you know lovely thing where we say we don't have a lot of questions about happiness when it's there we just love it we just experience it yet the experience of happiness is the object of our awareness it's revealed to us what is this awareness which is revealing and uh, exposing and uh, showing us this happiness what is the nature of that and this we'll touch upon as the time goes I have a crush on a nice Dharma teacher. <laughs> Mind is clinging to fantasy and hopes. H- hard to let go of. Because one, mental torture can seem pleasant. <laughs> and two, the mind sticks even more when told there's a no-go area. Don't worry, it can't possibly be connected with me. The word nice is in front of Dharma teacher. <laughs> so any time... Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you all agree. Um, any time when feeling life is flowing, is moving, is expressing itself in some uh, way of other, just as I mentioned earlier on with the VV, Vipassana villain, so easily, equally, it can land to on what's called uh, the short VR, Vipassana romance. And, and that can arise anywhere, anytime, any moment, any, any day. And sometimes one of the aspects of feature of uh, typical Vipassana romance is that it lands on a person that basically one doesn't know. Um, gosh, teachers are a little bit more uh, up the front here, so we're talking a little bit more. But the more authentic vipassana romance is not only is it that one doesn't know the person, but also one has never even spoken to the person uh, there. One has just simply observed them drink a cup of herbal tea mindfully or something. <laughs> <laughs> this is been more than enough to trigger the most profound love affair one's ever had <laughs> which has got to be a comment on the previous ones but anyway <laughs> so all this matter of uh, feeling movement contact uh, uh, connection and the uh, impact meeting, meeting together all of this I put in the all to human category and why not Rather unfortunately with all of this, particularly, I must say, we pass in our tradition, which is rather conservative, sometimes it's frowned upon. And I think it just misses the point. It misses the warm feelings that can be uh, flowing. It misses connection. It misses friendship, etc. And, of course, to look and to see where the grasping might be, where the holding on might be and sometimes it's worthwhile just to let 
the perception or the image of the person, whatever it may be, to fade away, just feel the warmth, just feel the, the feeling inside. And to some degree, in a larger sense, life in a deeper sense, I think we love it dearly, is romantic of itself. And, and ways of life can be romantic. Lifestyles can be romantic. Communication with life, the whole poetry of life is there. And it would be a, a pity if somehow, in some very austere way, uh, on uh, these re- re- retreats, it's all rather uh, frowned upon. And to me that tends to create a, a bit of a suppressive kind of a, a atmosphere. So we see the feelings that arise. We see what, how, when, where it uh, focuses. We acknowledge uh, all of that. Particularly, it's not the feelings, whether there's the clinging and the grasping on going uh, there. And that feeling, if we stay with that feeling, can flow much more easily and, uh, and freely. And people do touch us in many ways, in, in, in many points of contact. All that, I think, is part of Dharma life and, and uh, 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 spiritual life. I wonder if you could comment on discipline, quote-unquote discipline. What is a healthy attitude towards discipline? Does discipline uh, equal freedom? The um, tradition, let's speak a little of the tradition for a moment, it has um, emphasized, uh, from the Buddha here, uh, discipline. And the word deny, uh, discipline, Sometimes that shows itself, of course, in the many rules that monks and nuns have. It shows itself in many small disciplines that you and I are engaged in here, the discipline with assignments. Uh, Discipline that shows itself in our care and respect for each other. The discipline that we use just to bring our mind's attention back to the present moment. The word discipline and the word disciple, obviously, very, very close relationship. And the purpose of discipline, uh, to be a disciple, not to a, uh, a teacher or, or, a, or a guru or any of that, but more, much more importantly, to see what it is to be a disciple to the truth. Sometimes that being a disciple to the truth means that we have to be very clear with ourselves. Sometimes we have to be very uh, honest with ourselves. Sometimes in being a disciple to the truth, we may have to listen very carefully to what others tell us, the kind of feedback that we receive from uh, others, whether it's sent loving, said lovingly or sent, said with uh, resentment or, or blame. Still, nevertheless, can we, can we hear, can we see what's worthwhile, what's valid? And all that you know, is part of the discipline. It's the discipline of not living in denial. It's the discipline of not living in rejection. There are plenty of times, as I said this afternoon, when you and I need to say no. And that no may be to a habit, to a pattern, to uh, uh, um, an addiction, or, or whatever it might be. And every time we say no, because we want to free our life up, we want to keep our life free of the addiction, we're exercising discipline. So disciplines are a wonderful resource for the inner life, 
and it's a tremendous practice for, for all of us. When it goes too far, particularly in, reli- particularly in religion, uh, and in secular culture too, but when it goes too far, it's not serving us, but the outcome of, of it is control. And when we were told as young, you must discipline yourself. It, this pressure and putting control on us, instead of it opening up our life, it becomes a controlled form of life, and in a controlled form of life, there's less freedom. So it takes some wisdom to understand what's the beneficial discipline? What's, the, what's the, a, di- a discipline which is helping me to grow and develop as a human being? What's the discipline which is controlling? What's the discipline which is suppressing and denying? And it takes all of us some wisdom to be able to uh, work with this. What disciplines would I like to cultivate in my life? What would be helpful? If we explore in that way, then that will contribute to a much uh, greater sense of uh, inner, inner freedom and we haven't oppressed ourselves with too many rules and regulations and, and try to fix ourselves into boxes quite often, frankly, to please other people. Always when I attend a retreat, I am sure in my heart that when I return home, I will sit every morning before the kids get up and always, always, as sure as grass is green, this never happens. Have you anything to say about that? (laughs) Well, in some parts of the world, the grass is yellow. (laughs) I think there's some teaching for this person somewhere in this. Give me ten minutes, I'll work it out. (laughs) Sometimes we say, and others and do the retreat and then when the retreat is over I'm, I've been sitting in this wretched place seven or eight times a day anything from half an hour, 45 minutes, one hour, two hours, etc. Et morning, noon and night surely I can get in between three and five minutes in the morning every day and uh, sometimes with all the good resolution all the lectures on discipline uh, etc and one, and one gets home and it's like what? and it's just gone gone and then easily comes the view that arises inside of oneself oh I never seem to have the discipline to get my practice together I don't think practice and it's an odd thing for a meditation teacher to say but I don't think practice is just about life on the cushion and the community of practitioners the community of uh, contemplatives community of meditators really just as I was trying to do in the first part of the talk this afternoon really has to open its mind up more and break out of this um, shell that practice and sitting it goes together like wood and trees. There's much more to life than the cushion. 
And that sense of the exploration of the whole day, making our days more contemplative, more meditative, the sense of being and engagement with life rather than doing, 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 doing. If we explore in the Buddhist language the Eightfold Path and say the whole of the day is for exploration, the whole of the day is for practice, the whole of the day is uh, for insight and understanding, the whole of the day is a challenge to our being. If you think, that's my practice. And really said, this is my practice, the whole day is my practice. Then it may include for some, marvellous, life on the cushion, it may include regular meditation, and, and it's of immense value, of course it is. But it's a step too far in our relationship to it to put that as the absolute priority. And this shift is, 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 is vital, because there's too much self-blame, too much self-judgment for people who are upon themselves for not sit- sitting daily. And I have to say, particularly uh, for plenty of people, and especially um, with uh, parenting uh, uh, as well. The whole energy can be for years of getting up and all that's necessary with kids in the morning. But still the day can be uh, a, full, a full day. Everything is Dharma. All belongs to Dharma. We, we are swimming around in it and we hardly realise it. <coughs> is equanimity a neutral, pleasant, unpleasant feeling? Is it a conditioned phenomena? Does existence mean conditioning? <laughs> if yes, then all phenomena is under the neutral, pleasant, unpleasant feeling. And is that conditioned? I felt exhausted reading it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is a definite Buddhist practitioner's question, and now I can tell the language there. In um, Two places, uh, many, many aspects of the word equanimity. Equanimity, in its um, meaning for us, is the capacity in life to stay deeply steady despite what happens. This is called equanimity. The capacity to be deeply steady despite what happens. The jhanas I spoke in their refinement, I just spoke of the first and second, do, in its refinement and its effort, actually take one to greater levels of uh, equanimity. There is nothing deadening or dull or disinterested or uh, apathetic about equanimity. Sometimes the equanimity, well established, has to be towards what is pleasant. It has to be. Sometimes something is, uh, appears very uh, pleasant uh, uh, to us and we know that either the contact, let's say an addiction, or 
the pursuance of one knows it can be problematic in some way or other whatever it might be person, place, things, idea, etc. So the equanimity is the acknowledgement of the pleasant feeling arising being totally alert to it and yet not flowing on with it no matter how sweetly pleasant it might be similarly with something which is unpleasant somebody has said something it's hurtful we get a uh, we feel very unpleasant about it the equanimity would be in this case not to repeat like with like so somebody might say things, be very negative, cruel say horrible things about us, past or present to our face or to others may distort the truth, may uh, uh, have a mis- misunderstanding and find fault you know, all, all the things that people do uh, to us with these things, and, and all of us have experienced this uh, I'm sure in, in our lives I take the view, Christopher, don't think to that level. That's, what, that's the view I take, don't think to that level. So if negativity and blame and fault finding and being put down, etc, etc. To respond in like is to think to that level. And there's something, there's a lack of uh, integrity to it, there's a lack, lack of uh, worth, in, worth in that. So then that requires from us, in such times, can I stay economist? Sometimes that equanimity which is required from us, sometimes it's just noble silence. Anyone in any kind of small or larger, should we say, public role, any kind of leadership role, any kind of position of uh, authority, many things easily contribute to misunderstanding, contribute to confusion, etc. And sometimes one knows inside, trying to explain is hopeless. It is just hopeless. Sometimes the views that people have are, um, I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. (laughs) Etc. Or as we used to say when I was a newspaper reporter many years ago, Never let the truth stand in the way of a good story. <laughs> so, so sometimes the impact there, and sometimes it's just noble silence, the great tradition of noble, noble silence. When Pontius Pilate, in no, probably a rather arrogant manner, said to uh, uh, Jesus the, the night uh, before his execution, what's the truth, he said to him. What is the truth? And Jesus just kept noble silence, did nothing. Because he knew there was no point. No point to, in the manner and the attitude that was that was said. So sometimes in, a, in, la, in, in life there are situations where equanimity is significantly important. It's significantly important in, and very particularly in relationship to results. In relationship to results. And that results can be things not working out despite years of putting our attention into something. That results can be uh, loss of something, a separation, 
of our, of our title. So the practice of uh, equanimity, the establishing of uh, equanimity, um, matters a great deal. Is it conditioned? Of course it's conditioned. It's conditioned by many factors. It's conditioned by wisdom. It's, con- it's conditioned by the power of attention. It's conditioned by the energy. It's conditioned by the insight and understanding. It's conditioned by how deep we are in our being. It's conditioned by our capacity to see and hear things clearly, etc. So many factors come in that contribute to the condition of uh, equanimity. Oh, there's another, another love question today. That's rather nice, is it? <laughs> I'm in love! Exclamation mark. Not just I'm in love, in, I'm in love! Exclamation mark. Very sweet feelings. Whatever future may be is fine. Poor. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a confident writer. <laughs> what freedom! Exclamation mark. Yet the feelings seem dependent on memory. In the back of the person, contaminated by life. Where is the wisdom in being appreciative of this miracle of life? Well, the feelings seem dependent on memory. So, the dependent on memory. So we're sitting in the meditation, sitting here in the day, and then lo and behold, somebody from the past pops into consciousness as a kind of guest. And one, hearts open, in doing all this practice over the days, lots of love there, and then it lands on this poor person. <laughs> who is somewhere out there and warm feelings go, go towards. It, 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 it's lovely providing providing there is absolutely no expectation that what goes out will come back. So with sense and feeling of uh, love in life and love moving towards um, another or others with life, is part of heart opening in life, but to be clear, and maybe a little bit less. Whatever may, whatever future may be, is fine. Have we all heard that one liner before? <laughs> God, have we said it to ourselves? No problem. <laughs> no problem. I'm being here and now. <laughs> And the other person says, good, because I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's all these waves of, oh God, regret, disappointment, remorse, etc. And then the person says, whatever the future may be is fine, (laughs) etc. So the appreciation, just to appreciate, that's all. As the person said, it's part of the miracle of life. And it's not only religion and spiritual life, but I said the other day, cultural life too. You all know how love important it is for us. The pity about it, 
and this is the small mind of the human being, that we make a problem out of it, not because love is a problem, love doesn't know how to be a problem. Love is utterly unproblematic. It's just love. But I, me and my around it, oh, <laughs> dependency on others, oh, all, all of that. Nothing to do with the love, it's the relationship to it. And when a person says, oh, I have so much pain in my life because of my love. No, no, one doesn't have pain because of the love. One has pain because one doesn't understand the relationship to it. And so it's very much in the expression of love and letting love be and, let, and letting it uh, uh, be present, supportive of some understanding about it, supportive with wisdom. And if we don't have it in a box, in all the way that we can invest with it, then these moments of love can keep showing themselves through countless things, day in and day out, while being respectful and while being supportive to those whom we have a clear close connection with, those who are important and supportive to us in our life, showing uh, love there and an expansive one as well. What is the borderline between ironic speech being not right speech and right speech? Is it thinkable that any ironic speech or talk cannot be right speech? Why do we use ironic speech? Well, since the word ironic speech is... Anybody give me a definition of ironic? The ironic is nobody can, but anyway. <laughs> Keith, you went to school. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, how would you define ironic? I think you're a master at ironic. Uh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> well, I should know what it means. Any idea? What's ironic? The intended meaning is opposite of the apparent meaning. So ironic is the when the meaning you're conveying yes. is opposite to the to its apparent meaning. Oh. The apparent meaning of the word. You're right. Mm. All right. So, oh dear. <laughs> what is the borderline between giving the opposite meaning to the apparent meaning? Is that more or less? No, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and is this right speech? Um, since Keith tells me I'm a master of this, then I'm going to say, of course it's right speech. That's <laughs> silly. Um, with communication, I think with humour, with ironic comments, uh, etc. Sometimes it's the trust and the intention and the attitude that one has to rely upon. So though one might make a quip, though one, people like me, make one line, as, uh, etc, etc, etc. The, the intention is there, heartfulness, good humour, and one isn't putting the person down or 
or group or organisation or whatever it is then I think the spirit of that is what counts and that's fully in accordance with uh, right speech there (coughs) and sometimes all of us are speaking and sometimes spontaneously either to a person or to a group that sometimes we cross the line and we could um, uh, say something in the ironic speech line and it upsets a person or persons. So then we uh, need um, uh, feedback. And uh, one that might come to um, my mind today from um, my poor self was I was in the manager's room earlier on and one of our... Her name who's leaving tomorrow? Sarah. Sarah. So Sarah is, is leaving, le- leaving tomorrow and the staff very, very kindly provided this breathtakingly beautiful cake and for the staff and for the teachers. And so I, and I think she took it in good spirit, so I said, I said it's just great when people leave because then we get a bit of cake. <laughs> so, I mean, a one-liner like that, I said, only joking, and she she laughed, but a one-liner like that could be taking good spirits, I'm sure it was, but it could have ruined a whole year's stay here, (laughs) (laughs) etc. So sometimes, good humour and good good spirits is is part of uh, uh, sharing, part of uh, Dharma life, you know, if it goes too far, then whoever it is, we should say, hey, it's too much, gone too far. And sometimes people like me do. <laughs> so that's two or three people. What is the um, Buddhist view on gayness? When I first read it, I. I, I talking to Shiloh about this, I, I, I didn't have my glasses fixed on properly and I thought it said, what is the Buddhist view on greyness? So I went to have a look in the mirror to check. Uh, um, <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> okay. uh, um, I'm sure you, like myself, um, feel concern, and I think it's quite a problem. Let's let's say in the Buddhist tradition, though uh, it has has arisen, but in the um, Middle East religions, Judeo-Christianity uh, particularly, there's often quite a lot of views uh, expressed uh, about uh, gender gender is- gender issues, and uh, here the. Uh, the church in uh, this this country has been struggling for quite some time uh, around this. We've all seen and read the reports on Aunt Shaw about heterosexuality and uh, being gay and, and so forth. In the uh, text, the Buddha protested furiously, uh, furiously, I shouldn't say that word, protested, <laughs> protested kindly about it. <laughs> protested kindly about it. And he wanted to get away <coughs> from this world of gurus um, and disciples. He wanted to have a different kind of communication, a different kind of uh, relationship. 
In a different kind of relationship, he used the word Kalyana Mitra, good friend, to be friends, to be friends with each other. And therefore lowered that gap from up there to here. And the only reason that this poor wallow is sitting up here, I admit is a few centimetres, I do apologise, simply to see the view at the back. Nothing else. What is it? Just a little bit of nothing. So that area, but sometimes that gap that takes place, can take place, easily becomes easily becomes problematic. I, to give you an example, it sent alarm through me. Some of us teachers went to a, a meeting last. Um, I can't remember when it was. Last. Uh, uh, summer and this was on roles and responsibilities which are vitally important with all the care and awareness and uh, uh, respect that is required and one of the one lines that I remember touching me like whoa wait a minute this is going too far in which the facilitators of this uh, uh, workshop of people involved in spiritual life and uh, uh, roles and responsibilities were told among the many things that were said that if a touch takes place one should be like somebody is handing you something and the hands uh, make contact and one is in a, in a role you know, it could be a teacher, could be a doctor could be a spiritual teacher or, or, or whatever one has to be very very careful these days because that touch of one hand on the other quote unquote could be interpreted in a particular way. Are we actually going to reach the point in life where we can't be friends with each other, we can't talk to each other, we can't contact, we can't enjoy it because of roles, and it ends up that kind of gap in alienation. And it's going along those lines. We're being frozen into positions, and some of us feel deep concern about it because it's at the expense of what people like Jesus have told us, what people uh, like the Buddha have told us, what the, 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 the wise saints and sages have kept reminding us about the importance of deep friendship in life. So our, our exploration of our heart and uh, joy and uh, happiness and uh, there, but with wisdom to be wise about life, to be wise about the ways of the world, to be wise about the, the depth and importance of interconnectedness uh, with this world. And uh, wisdom gives support to friendship. Wisdom gives support to kindness. And every day, if your eyes and ears are open while you are here, just here, just think of the amount of loving kindness we are receiving every day. Just think about it. Just think about the selfless service that the staff are giving us. Our in the preparation that goes into making this place happen. Think about the work of the trustees, all voluntary work, our in, our out, to help ensure the good continuity of the place. Of all the variety of uh, teachers that there all the people that come and do work retreat and personal retreat and all of your presence. People all running out of kindness. All run, running out of a sense of an appreciation of what is important. And all of us, teachers and students alike, all in the same learning curve. 
there isn't a hierarchy. Teachers are learning, and the, and the, the teacher must always be the student. Once the teacher stops being the student, it's a loss. It's a pity because the oneself becomes important. But one knows one's always a student, and one knows one's a, one's a teacher as well, and one is learning as well, and one is learning and taking steps and exploring just as uh, everyone else is here. And that cooperating together, and that working together, it works not only here, but many places because of one thing, kindness. One thing, friendship. One thing, respect for each other. One thing, interconnectedness. And that, that's the fabric that holds sentient beings together. And, and that has power to it and has great authority to it. And it's up to you and I to make sure that voice, that voice of interconnectedness, is present in this world again and again and again and, and again. And out of that change will come. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with friendliness. May all beings be deeply immersed in the great in the great web of interconnectedness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.